Well, good morning. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. And uh, welcome this morning. So good to see you here. And we're going to continue our study through uh, just studying the life of David as documented in the Old Testament books of 1 and 2 Samuel. So 1 Samuel is where we're at right now in the study. And 15 chapters in 1 Samuel focus on this overlap of the dramatic fall of King Saul, the failed first king of Israel, and the rise of King David, who's the second king of Israel, the greatest king that Israel ever had. And that's actually the backdrop for the text we're looking at this morning. And so as we jump into this, let me begin by asking a question. How does your heart respond to the successes and the blessings of God in other people's life? How does your heart respond to the blessings of God in other people's life? If we're honest, it's not always easy to respond well when we see other people doing really well. All right, how many of you moms have been scrolling through Instagram, Facebook, and you are scrolling and you see a picture of your friend who's got the perfect picture of their perfect family, their perfect children, and their perfectly ironed outfits, and their perfectly clean, perfectly decorated, like fixer upper level living room, and their kids are pleasantly, just politely playing a game together there in the living room, and it's kind of just captured just another Saturday morning, right? Hashtag just another Saturday morning, and you reluctantly like the photo only to look up at the madhouse of your life right your your home that looks a little different you got your outdated furniture you are looking forward one day to upgrading right and you look around and see your kids one of them's got cereal in their hair there's already been a fight that morning over a video game you got a toddler hanging from a ceiling fan and you look back down at this picture your friend posted kind of like wow i'm so happy for you right have you ever been there all right, where you're kind of happy for your friend, but you also just kind of want to block all their future posts. You know what I mean? We've all had those moments, whether it's a friend getting a car, or whether it's somebody getting the promotion or a job opportunity you wish you got, or, or they're on a vacation that's always been your dream vacation, or they're, they just posted again about their grandkids who, uh, or grandkid who got his like, second doctorate degree, you know, and we've all experienced those moments and experienced how in those moments it's a lot easier to let envy and to let resentment and to let jealousy kind of creep into our hearts rather than celebrate the blessing of God in those people's lives or the successes in those people's lives. Well, that kind of struggle in the human heart isn't anything new, all right? Isn't anything new. 3,000 years ago in Israel, a young man named David that we've been studying about defeats Goliath. He helps lead his nation to defeat the great, their great enemy, the Philistines, who are the Philistines. And overnight, he becomes this national hero, right? He's got, a lot is going well in the life of David. He becomes a household name. Everybody in the nation is talking about David, but the text narrows primarily in on the response of just two people in Israel at this point in the story. And it's actually just two kings. It narrows in on two kings' response to uh, David's success and the blessings of God in David's life. And the smaller but important question that we're going to be confronted with this morning is this. How do we respond to the success of people around us? So we're going to answer that question for ourselves this morning. But the bigger, more significant question that this text is going to confront us with is, am I willing to surrender all of my life, not just my friendships, but all of my relationships to the ultimate anointed king that this story points to? All right, so with that said, let's stand with our Bibles open. Let's begin to read in verse 1. 1 Samuel chapter 18, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. 
And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David uh, and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul uh, sent him. So that Saul uh, set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the woman, the, the women came out of the city, city of Israel and they were singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the, woman, the women sang to, uh, to one another and they celebrated. And here was their song. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Uh-oh. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. All right, let's have a seat as we pray. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me this morning. Lord, I pray that you would help us to focus on your word, that we would have teachable hearts. Lord, I pray that you would help us understand what it means to be a godly friend in the lives of people around us. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to examine our lives, that Scripture would, that your word would be held up like a mirror to our lives, Lord, and that we would make sure that there's no areas of our life that we're not submitting uh, to your kingship. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if I was to give this sermon a title, the title that we could call it would be maybe the Tale of Three Kings. All right, here's the outline this morning. This morning, we're going to look at the jealous king in the story. We're going to look at the humble king in the story. And then we're going to look at the greater king in the story. First, let's look at the jealous king, King Saul. All right, let's begin by picturing what's happening in verse 6. All right, so Saul, in verse 6, he's, he's loving life, right? The Philistines are defeated. Uh, a parade of women are coming at him with instruments. And they begin to uh, sing his praises in verse 7. The first part of that song is Saul has struck down his thousands. And you know Saul is eating that up. He's got these people singing his praises. There's a parade uh, in his, he feels like in his honor, right? They're singing a song about him. And then look at the next line in the song. It says, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. All right, so Saul doesn't like the parade in him, right? With that line in the song. Now, that wasn't meant, we don't think, to be like a dig at Saul, but that's definitely the way that he took it. And verse 8 says that Saul was filled with anger, and from that day on, he eyed David. You have a mom or dad or somebody in your life that could just give you the eye, right? Could just send you a message with that look, you know what I mean? Uh, well, this was uh, even, this was way, way more, well, when somebody eyes you like that, you're like, that's not good. This was way worse than that, not, that's not good. This was connected to some evil, dark intentions in Saul's heart towards David. And when it says he eyed David, basically he was saying this, I've got my eye on David and I'm going to kill him. I'm going to eliminate him, right? He wants to remove, he wants to get rid of David. And here's why, because David's success is a threat to the thing that's most important to Saul, and that's Saul's glory. All right, Saul is all about Saul. So if there's like a southern subtitle for, uh, subheading for this section of scripture, the southern subheading could be like, it's all about Saul, y'all, because it is. It's all about Saul. Saul's made it all about himself. But I want to make sure at the beginning of the sermon this morning that we recognize, hey, that when we examine God's word, when we read God's word, that we're not reading it responsibly if we're not letting it read us. If we're not letting it examine us And we need to recognize that uh, what's going on in Paul's life, this sinful, toxic, self-centered posture that we see in Saul can easily grow in our hearts if we are not careful. All right? So when you find your identity in the success, in your own success, 
When you find your identity in your success, you will find the success of other people to be a threat to you. All right, that, That's what's happening in the life of Saul. And so David is experiencing success. He's experiencing the blessings of God in his life. And Saul feels threatened. And he takes a posture of jealousy and envy. Well, the Bible shows us that envy unchecked gives birth to the sin of malice, the heart sin of malice. And the Bible shows us that the heart sin of malice, if unchecked, can give birth to the ultimate sin of murder. To the sin of murder. And that's exactly what you see here. Over the next three chapters, we're going to go over in the the next little bit, chapters 18, 19, and 20. So if everything goes well, we should be out here by like 3.30 today, okay? Actually, this is going to go really quickly. In chapters 18, 19, and 20, what you see is eight different times in these three chapters, Saul trying to kill David. All right, so let me just give you the highlight reel of that. So first time in chapter 18, verse, verses 10 and 11, that's the first time you see uh, Saul trying to murder David. And uh, David's there in the palace. He's playing his harp. He's playing an instrument for Saul. That was kind of his part-time job to go to the palace and to play his harp for Saul. And it says Saul hurls a spear at his head, right? So he, he misses him. He actually throws it at his head twice. He misses him. He has to have bad aim, right? He does not have good aim. By the way, you thought your job was hard. Have you... I, I'm, probably certain that you've never like woke up in the morning going hmm, i wonder if today my boss is going to hurl a spear at my head it's a tough place for david to be in verses 20 through 29 saul gives his daughter to david to be his wife michael but it, for the bride price it says there of a hundred philistine foreskins all right so saul's like yeah you can take my daughter's hand in marriage but i'm going to get you killed in the process because you're going to need to go and kill a hundred philistines and bring back some a token of, some proof that you did that it's a very bizarre part of this story right in fact david brings back 200 it's a strange part of the story by the way you thought it was awkward asking for your wife's hand in marriage from your father-in-law imagine what david had to deal with Chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, Saul throws another spirit, David said, misses, bad aim. Verse 11, Saul sends messengers to kill a David and his wife, helps him escape. It's a very interesting story. In fact, she hears word that some of Saul's servants are coming to kill David. And so she sends David out the window to escape. And she actually sets up an idol statue in David's bed and like pulls the covers up and puts goat hair on, his, on, the, on the statue's head to make it look like hair. And when they show up, she's like, hey, he's sick right now. He can't see any visitors. Why? He's escaping. That's a ride or die wife right there. You know what I'm saying? He's got a good wife. And so he escapes. In chapter 20, Saul's planning another attempt, but uh, Saul's son, Jonathan, jumps in and defends him. And he actually ends up rescuing David there. And, and Saul throws a spear at his own son's head there. So this is, can you say rage-filled, crazy, uh, like self-absorbed maniac? Plotting murders, throwing spears. Like, how did he get here? It can all be traced back to letting the seeds of envy and jealousy and pride take root in his heart. And it absolute corroded him, absolutely corroded him on the inside. But let's remember, listen, that we are, we're not examining our Bibles and we're not reading our Bibles faithfully if we're not allowing our Bibles to examine us, right? So we need to ask the question, where do we see Saul in us? Specifically, when it comes to how we relate to other people, right? Here's a better question. What does your heart do when somebody else gets a blessing that you don't get? Right? We, when we have to watch our friends or our family members or our co-workers get the very thing that we long for, whether that's the house or the job or the promotion or the spouse or the baby or the well-deserved child. What, what's the knee-jerk reaction of your heart when that happens? You know, there's a saying that is connected to, to unforgiveness. You may have heard this before. It's really powerful. 
and memorable. It's, here it is. Um, it's unforgiveness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. All right, have you ever heard that? Unforgiveness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. And what, that, what that's meant to do is it's meant to show the foolish self-destruction that you bring into your life when you harbor unforgiveness. Well, as toxic as unforgiveness is, envy and jealousy, let jealousy left alone in our hearts will absolutely corrode our heart as well. It will take you down a terrible path of self-destruction, and it absolutely destroys Saul's life in dramatic fashion. So can I ask you again, where, do, where is your heart tolerating envy and pride and jealousy? This is a tragic story that's meant to deliver a very sober warning to not tolerate it, to stop it. Don't let it take root in your heart in even the smallest of ways. And hey, I'll be the first to confess. Like sometimes I, I feel like the chief of sinners in here. Can I just confess a little bit of how envy and jealousy can some, sometimes take root in my heart in some of the silliest of ways? It can happen so quickly and so easily. Can I just share a story with you? Like a few weeks ago, I'm riding through my neighborhood and I almost come to a complete stop. I'm creeping along, right? And I'm rubbernecking. I even took my sunglasses on so I could check out my neighbor's brand new new, shiny, beautiful, green John Deere riding lawnmower. Amen, <laughs> Insert cheesy joke about being green with envy. Green riding lawnmower. Like I have a, I have a push lawnmower. It's self-propelled. Works great. I don't even have a big enough yard to justify having a riding lawnmower. You probably can get it mowed in about three or four three-point turns on a riding lawnmower. I don't need a riding lawnmower. Right? But, man, that John, it just looked good. You could tell it was brand new. I even had a cup holder on it. I was like, man, I can see myself driving that thing, listening to a podcast with a Coke Zero in the cup holder, right? I was just staring at it, just coveting, right? Right? Lucky guy, right? I've never felt more middle-aged in my life <laughs> than lusting, at, lusting after a riding lawnmower, right? That's how dumb it can be. Right? It's just something that we, we never really grow out of it. It just kind of changes its expression in different stages of our life. And that's a life, that's got a light, kind of goofy example of how envy and jealousy can creep in. Right? But none of us are immune from being gripped by the envy that's gripped Saul's heart. None of us are immune from being gripped by the jealousy that has gripped his heart. You may not, you may not be hurling physical spears at people's head out of jealousy, but make no mistake, envy unchecked will kill friendships, will kill relationships. Jealousy and pride unchecked will kill joy in your life. Let me ask you, where in your life have you allowed the blessings of God in other people's lives to sow envy and jealousy in your own heart? Are you bitter because you feel like you're always the last one to get the nice new toy on your street or in your family? Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Always watching classmates, always watching friends, always watching siblings and family members get promoted. And it's like it doesn't feel fair. If you let that envy and that jealousy stay and take root and grow and blossom, it is a wicked cancer that will poison your heart and it will lead to self-destruction. It will always lead to self-destruction. Well, how do we not let it do that, right? What is the cure for comparison? Maybe you're like, I know what it is. It's counting my blessings. And that's what I do, Pastor. Whenever I get envious and jealous, I just count my blessings, name them one, one, two, three, four. I'm happy again, right? Well, that's good. It's good to count your blessings, but it's not enough. It's good to do that. It kind of, kind of pulls at those weeds a little bit. It's good to do that. But it's not enough because you always find somebody else with more blessings. 
You always find somebody with a nicer boat. You always find somebody with a newer car. You'll always find somebody with another great opportunity. What really weeds this out? What's the cure for comparison and envy and jealousy? It is always, or always remember this, it's always choosing to root your contentment in Christ. It's always choosing to find your contentment in Christ. It's believing more gospel truths like found in Ephesians chapter 1 that says we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. In Christ, we are blessed. Think of it, all that is ours in Christ Jesus, all the treasures that are ours in Christ Jesus, the complete forgiveness, right? the, complete, the, the forever entrance into the family of God in Christ Jesus, all the treasures that are ours in His. Right? When I believe those truths more, when I believe verses like that more, when I can honestly say in Christ, I'm who God made me to be, I have what He's entrusted me to have to enjoy, and I'm secure in who I am in Him, and I'm just consumed with thankfulness and gratefulness and worship for the countless ways that He has blessed an undeserving sinner like me. When you can stay in that lane of faith, when you can run right there, listen, that is where you will experience a life that is less dominated by envy and jealousy and resentment and is more dominated by gladness and worship and joy. And it actually turns you into a really good friend. It turns you into a really good, humble, kind of life-giving friend. And that brings us to the second king, the humble king this morning, which is Jonathan. The beginning of chapter 18, David and Jonathan meet. This is after... David's victory over Goliath, and we see that there's an immediate connection between them. It says, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. That phrase there, their souls were knit together, that's a Hebrew phrase that's meant to describe when somebody gets deeply and socially attached to somebody else. So there's a deep connection right here. This is Jonathan like meeting David going, man, my man, this is my guy. There's a connection here. Now, we... we Know that there's definitely a military connection here. Like he's connecting one warrior to another. If you, there, there's no scene change, by the way, going from the end of chapter 17 and the beginning of 18. Do you remember what David was doing at the end of 17? He was running around with Goliath's head. And then Saul wants him to come into his presence with that head. So he's there meeting Jonathan like in a, like a, a more uh, you know, close way for the first time. And he's got the head of Goliath under his arm, right? That's an interesting way to meet somebody. Like, let me, hold on a second. Nice to meet you, man, you know. But did John, Jonathan's an accomplished warrior. He's the greatest general that Israel's ever seen up to this point. And he's like, this is my dude. So they're, they're connecting as warriors, but if you watch their friendship develop, it's actually clear that there's a deep spiritual connection. Jonathan senses that David has got a godly character, that he's consumed and obsessed with the glory of God, not the glory of David. And, and Jonathan has a passion for the glory of God, and that's evidenced by his response to David's success. Notice how differently Jonathan responds to David, where Saul was envious of David and turned David into a friend. Jonathan celebrates David's victory. and becomes He moves close to David and becomes a friend to David. And you know what? David needs a friend. David needed a friend like Jonathan. Three times in chapter 18, it says God was with David. It says that phrase. That's a theme through chapter 18. Really through the rest of David's life. God was with David. So the sovereign God of the universe is looking out for David. He knows what's ahead for David in the days to come. He knows how really difficult things are about to get. Just think about how we just highlighted all those different ways that Saul tries to kill him. Right? So here, David is meeting Jonathan before all those attempts on his life. God knows that uh, David's going to need something. One of the evidences that God was with David is that he provides David with a friend. 
to be close to Him through all those difficult times that are ahead. God uses godly friendships in our life. It's one of the most powerful, sanctifying tools that God uses in our life. Godly friendships. God uses godly friendships to strengthen us, to shield us, and to shape us. Friendships have a powerful shaping influence on your life. That's why David needed a godly friend like Jonathan. That's why we need godly friends in our life. That's why we need to be godly friends to people around us. Every believer needs at least one, even better, one, one, two, three Jonathan caliber friends in their inner circle. In your inner circle, you need some Jonathan caliber friends in your life. Like We definitely need to have relationships with people who are lost. That's, that's a biblical thing to have, to have relationships with people who are lost so that in those friendships we can point them to Christ. But you need to keep those close proximity, inner circle relationships. You need to keep a high standard when it comes to who those friends are in that circle. Because they have a shaping influence on your life. You need to remove the Saul caliber friendships that suck the life out of you. People who have seeds of envy and jealousy in their life or in your life for their own glory, right? You need some Jonathan caliber friends in your life who are for you, who are in your life for God's glory, to be an encouragement to you, to be a friend to you. Don't cut out the Jonathan, the Saul caliber friends who suck the life out of you and bring in some Jonathan caliber friends who will breathe some life into you. Well, what's a Jonathan caliber friend look like? Well, let's just think about the kind of friend Jonathan was to David. He was a loving friend. We see that chapter 18, verse 1, and Jonathan loved David as his own soul. So a godly friend loves the Lord. Loves the Lord and then reflects the love of God in their relationships. They love like God, which means they love in their friendships unconditionally. A godly friend doesn't love you based on your performance. A godly friend doesn't abandon the friendship when you don't do what they want you to do. Or when things get hard or when they get their feelings hurt, they love sacrificially. They love honestly. A true friend doesn't just tell you what... You want them to tell you, they'll tell you what you need to hear, even if it hurts your feelings. Jonathan was also a loyal friend. Some of David's most difficult moments are ahead and are going to involve Saul trying to kill him. And this is going to be difficult for Jonathan to be a friend at times because the guy trying to kill David is going to be his dad. Jonathan's dad's the one trying to kill David. And so to be next to David and to be a friend to David would mean to betray his own father and as the heat turns up it's going to become very costly for Jonathan but what you're going to see through his life is he's never going to leave David's side he's never going to stop being the godly friend that David needs he defends him he, he rescues him on occasion he even risks his own life to be a good friend hey we need friends like that in our life and we need to be friends godly friends like that in the lives of people around us but the characteristic of a godly friend that we see in Jonathan that most dominates this text is that of humility. Is that of humility. You cannot be a godly friend without the fruit of the Spirit of humility growing in your life. And we most clearly see that in Jonathan's life in the verses at the beginning of chapter 18 that we read just a moment ago together when we stood. We see it most clearly right there. Now, remember, we're calling Jonathan the humble king. Right? And maybe you're wondering, why call him a king? Well, we're calling him a king because he's the crown prince of Israel. We're calling him a king because he's next in biological line to receive the crown. He's the Prince William of Israel. That's who Jonathan is. And so where Saul, think about this, where Saul had everything to lose by David rising to power, so does Jonathan. Jonathan is next in line. And David's standing 
between him and his hopes and his dreams for kingship, but how does Jonathan respond to the meteoric rise of David? He's, he's obviously moving quickly to the throne. Well, verse 4, it says, And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, hold on a second. What's going on right here? Is Jonathan just trying to be friendly? Is he just, is it cold outside and he's letting his friend borrow his coat because he's cold? No, he's giving David his royal robe. Jonathan's the son of the king. He has got, he's got on all of his royal garb. He's got on a royal robe, a shield. He's got a sword, a bow. And what Jonathan is doing is not just giving his friend his coat on a cold night. He's symbolically giving him the kingdom. He's recognizing, David, you're the rightful king of the kingdom. I know that politically speaking, I'm the next in biological line to the throne. But you're the rightful king. It's an amazing demonstration of humility as he's removing all the vestiges of kingship and he's handing them over to David as if to say, David, if God's hand's on you, then I'm on your team, even if it threatens to take something from me. That's humility. He's not plagued with envy and jealousy and pride like his dad is. He isn't threatened by the success of other people. He's not looking out for his own interests, number one. He is a godly, humble, selfless, true friend. True friendship is selfless. It rejoices in the blessing of other people, even when those blessings are blessings that you want for yourself. He is a truly humble friend who's so secure in the Lord, and this should be a goal for us. He's so secure in the Lord that he's able to say, instead of, why not me? This isn't fair. Why not me? He's able to say, good for you, David. I'm happy for you. And I want to be a friend to you. Does the fruit of humility mark your friendships? Does it characterize the way that you relate to people? As a, as a follower of Christ, it should. And if you've got friends like that, thank God this morning for friends like that in your life. That is a gift of God in your life. And thank them. Like, make sure you let them know how much you appreciate them. Send them a text. Go up to them. Tell them, thank you for being a friend. Right? Don't sing the Golden Girl song to them, but, but tell them, thank you for being a friend. Tell them how grateful you are for them. We all need friends like that in our life. We need to seek to be a friend like that because God uses godly friends to encourage us, to sanctify us, to shield us, to strengthen us, and to shape us more into the image of Christ. And let me just step aside and say this this morning. If you're married, you need to to seek to be this kind of humble friend to your spouse. Christian marriages that... 30, 40, 50, 60 years in are as strong as ever. If you sit down and interview them, the bond that they share and the happiness that they're experiencing all these years later from the moment that they said, I do, is because they have learned to grow as the best of godly friends. Who have learned not perfectly, but progressively to exemplify Philippians chapter 2, which really is the defining passage on humility. Where it says, do not look out merely for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. If you're a young married couple in the room today, and there's a lot of you out there, young married couples, got little kids in the house, you need to learn this early on. Building a friendship strengthens your marriage. Be careful that you don't approach marriage as some kind of like business partnership and we're kind of together in this. We're raising kids together. We're on the same page trying to raise kids the best that we can and we're we're kind of a team that we're trying to keep the bills paid and, and we're meeting each other's physical needs along the way. You need your spouse to be something deeper than that. You need them to be your best friend. 
So many marriages struggle because the relationship became about the parenting. It's kind of became some kind of form of a business relationship of just meet, get, making sure that the end that you were that the ends were being met in your home and the bills were being paid. And then what happens is those things kind of end as far as like your kids move out and the careers begin to wind down and you see marriage marriages struggle because they didn't learn to cultivate the friendship along the way. If your marriage feels weak right now. It's probably connected to a weak friendship in that marriage. You need to learn to be friends. You need to learn to be... To, we need to learn from the way that... like, In other words, your spouse should be like a Jonathan Caliber friend in your life. And you should be a Jonathan Caliber friend in your spouse's life. You need friendship in your marriage for it to be strong. So this text confronts us with a question today. Are you eaten up with envy and jealousy and pride like Saul? Or are you seeking to be a life-giving, humble, encouraging, godly friend like Jonathan? That's, hey, that's what I need in my life. That's what I need to be in other people's life. But this is a story, as we see Jonathan acknowledging David as king, that confronts us with an even bigger question this morning. And that's, will, that's this, will I surrender everything? Not just the area of my friendships, but will I surrender everything in my life to God's true anointed king that this story points to? We need to keep remembering through this entire story that this all points to God's ultimate anointed king, who King David is but a shadow of, and that's King Jesus. He's the third king that we're looking at in this text this morning. Jesus is the greater king. And just like Saul and Jonathan had to decide how they would respond to God's anointed king in Israel... We too have to decide how we're going to respond to God's greater anointed king of the world. Are we willing, like Jonathan, to surrender and hand over the entirety of our little kingdom over him, over to him? Each of us, in a way, kind of has a dominion over our little kingdoms, our lives, our resources, our bodies, our relationships, our thought life, our homes, our future. Our, in, are we willing, like Jonathan, to hand over the vestiges of kingship over to the king and to hand it all over to Jesus, or are we going to cling to power and position and remain on the throne of our own little life like Saul, who we see it doesn't end well with? Before I press this any further, let me pause right here and help us remember the, to remember the kind of king that Jesus is. The kind of king that we hand our lives over to and we surrender our kingdom to Christ. We saw that last week with David. Hopefully it's still fresh in your mind as we think about the kind of king David is. Where David steps in, remember last week, in the valley of Allah and does for God's people what they couldn't do for themselves? He didn't come in as a king who pushed his subjects to the front lines like King Saul did, defending his own life. He flipped the whole order and David went out and put his own life on the line and he defeated the enemy on the behalf of his subjects so that his victory became their victory. And so to you and I, we, we don't stand a chance against our great enemies. Sin, hell, and the grave. And yet God sent the unlikely Savior, Jesus Christ, into this world who came and did for us what we can't do for ourselves. Who came and went to the battle lines on our behalf. Went to the cross. Defeated our great enemies there on that cross. And for all who trust in Him, His victory on the cross becomes our victory. Oh, what a Savior, right? That should make us go, oh, what a Savior. But He isn't just a good and gracious Savior who saves our souls from hell. He is a good and gracious, trustworthy Lord who demands our all. Who wants us to surrender everything to Him on His terms. No preconditions, no rivals, no equals. He wants first place in our life. And we, the problem is we just need to keep remembering and understanding. That's what He wants. We just need to keep remembering and understanding that that's a really good thing for us to do. 
Jesus coming into my life and reigning as king of my life is a good thing. It's the best thing for my life. Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus that Christ would reign in their life as king over all of their life. But he said it like this. This was his prayer in Ephesians three fourteen. He said, be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ, so that the King Jesus, may dwell in your heart through faith. Now that word dwell right there, that's a strong word. That word dwell doesn't mean to just hang out. It doesn't mean to reside. The original language, when you look at it, it means to settle down. He uses that word on purpose right there. It's the picture of somebody moving in as a permanent residence and settling down. Can I just tell you how grateful and blessed I am that my wife chose not to just reside in our house, but she has settled in. That was a good place for all you men to say amen. I gave it. I teed it up for you right there. I am so grateful my wife isn't just residing in my house, but that she settled in. Before we got married, I lived for a short period of time in the home that we then moved in together after we got married. And so I lived there for a short while, and I thought I had the place looking pretty good, right? Until she walked in and was like, yeah, we're going to need to do something about this, all right? So to say that the decor of my house and the vibe of my house was boring, vanilla, um, would be an understatement, right, before she moved in. And I don't, I don't need a whole lot, right? I'm, I'd be fine with like a recliner, a TV, and like a freezer full of Totina's party pizzas. I'm a happy man. That's all I need in life. I'm a simple guy. And so praise God that she came in and didn't just inhabit the building of our house. She settled in and she helped this poor guy out. Poor guy out. There may be a few flower arrangements I could live without. Definitely a lot of throw pillows that I could do, do, do without. But I live with it. Why? Because she's made my house feel like a home. And she keeps making it better and better and better because that is where she dwells. Here's my point. The Spirit of King Jesus doesn't just come into our life to hang out, to visit. He comes in to dwell. He comes in to reign. He comes in to be the King of our life. He comes in to redecorate our souls with His divine nature and His holy character. And He wants to reign over every room. No room locked away. No room sectioned off. No doors locked. He comes to to rule over and to transform every area of our life as our good and competent and trustworthy king and life works best when my life is fully surrendered to his lordship when my life is fully surrendered to him as king all of it now listen to me carefully you don't do all that at one time some of you are thinking see i become a christian but if i become a christian man i'm so overwhelmed at the thought of all that i'm going to need to change and you got this laundry list of things that you realize that you need to change and it's so long it overwhelms you so much that you're like forget about it i could never change that much i could never surrender all of my life to king jesus in the way that you're talking right now listen you don't you don't have to change it all at once you know how much you need to change to step into a relationship with Christ? You know how much you need to change? You need to repent of your sins and believe the gospel. Turn from your sins. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Bow your knee to Him as Lord. And then you start taking it one day at a time. You repent of your sins. Then first step, get baptized. And then you start... Yeah, you bring some Jonathan Caliber godly friends into your life. You connect with those even right here at a Bible Connect group. We have actually a discipleship strategy right here. Once you repent of your sin, that you can jump into. 
Begin to gather together and worship with other believers each Sunday and Wednesday corporately. Start getting into the Word yourself. Connect with other believers in a Bible Connect group. And you just begin to take it day by day. And then what God does by His grace and by His Spirit is He begins to reveal areas of your life that need to be surrendered to Him. And then by His Spirit empowers you to bow that knee again and again and again. He doesn't do it all in one day. And so my plea to you today, if you're not a Christian, is to be like Jonathan, to simply bow your knee to King Jesus. And just to take off that, that kind of that robe that represents kind of the vestiges of kingship for you, of you trying to rule your own life and saying, you know what, I'm done. I'm bowing my knee. I'm trusting in what Christ did for me on the cross. You're my king. I want to follow you. And then you let him take it from there. And if you know Christ, I challenge you to think about who your life looks more like right now by also looking at Jonathan and Saul. By thinking about which right now pictures more of your relationship with your king. Is it more like Jonathan or is it more, is it more like King Saul? Because we all understand that even when we've come to Christ and bowed our knee to Him as Lord and Savior and given over those vestiges of kingship and given over our life to Him, we know that sometimes in our flesh we like to take that royal robe and put it back on and start making decisions ourselves, don't we? We like to sit down on the throne of our own life and do things our way. And we look at Saul and we know it's true. It never works out right. It never works out well. I, followed, I have followed Christ for 22 years. Some of you have followed Christ longer than I have. And in 22 years, I've found out a lot of days I've learned the hard way that Jesus is a much more competent, a much more trustworthy, a much better wise king of my life than Jonathan Revis. He knows what he's doing. So the invitation to the believer is to acknowledge Jesus as king over every area of your life today in a fresh way to surrender. God, I want to surrender it all to you. I'm not holding anything back. Lord, here's my life again. I'm surrendering it to you. Here's my kids. Here's my job. Here's my marriage. Here's my friendships. But not just my friendships. Here's all of my life. I'm surrendering it all to you. No rivals. No equals. Not on my terms. On your terms. Have it all. But. Maybe that kind of absolute surrender scares you a little bit. Maybe that kind of absolute surrender to the kingship of Christ makes you a little nervous because you're like, Pastor, I'm afraid if I surrender to God like that, if I'm like absolutely surrendering to Him, like what if He makes me move to like the Himalayas and a hut and be a missionary the rest of my life? Hey, He may do that. I can't promise you He's not going to do that because He does that all the time. I can tell you if He does that, that He's going to, He's going to give you what you need. He's going to equip you along the way. But, hey, listen, it's much more likely as you make that decision today to bow your knee in a fresh way and say, God, I want to be like Jonathan. No rooms locked away. I want to give it all to you. It's much more likely he's just going to send you right back where you were yesterday. To your family, to your wife, to your husband, to your job to your kids, to your school, to your friendships, to experience a life of joy and influence for His glory as you acknowledge Him as King and seek to serve Him as King in those areas. Jesus is the true, good, competent, trustworthy King. And so church, would we be people who loves Him and worships Him and gladly and joyfully surrenders to Him the entirety of our little kingdoms? May we do that by His grace. Let's ask, let's... Let's pray.